0: Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Christmas. It is uh, such an amazing thing to be here with all of you. And I know on behalf of Calvary Wallingford, it's such a wonderful thing to come together with other Christians in a city and to worship the King and worship Jesus together. And we just feel so, um, so happy to be here. Turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 we're going to look at verses 8 through 14 this morning Luke 2 8 through 14 I'm going to start reading while you're turning there um, and then we'll pray and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord, shone around them, and they were very afraid. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, Of all places. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, uh, we're gathered together because we believe that this happened, that you sent your Son into our weary planet to save us. And I'm asking that you would help that idea dawn on our hearts again this morning. No matter where we're at in our walks of life or our questions or our journey or our own growth, um, Lord, would you speak to every heart here? And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen, uh, a year ago, on this very day, Christmas Eve, we did something just well, we did this we all the Calvary chapels in the city of Seattle gathered at Calvary the Hill. Um, I think it was at night though I think it was an evening service, and we had this incredible time. We sang Christmas carols, we took communion, we pondered what the birth of Christ meant for our weary world and one of the things that was mentioned was the phrase at the end of verse 14 in our text. This phrase, peace on earth. And as wonderful as that service and that Christmas season was, I have to say that phrase troubled me that night. I felt bothered by that phrase because um, I, did, I wasn't experiencing very much peace, to be honest with you. Uh, we, were, we were wrestling with some difficult things at our church. I was personally struggling with some internal issues, and the world, I I mean, much like it is today, the world was processing a series of events that I don't think anyone would call peaceful. It reminded me of the words written by uh, this famous American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1864 on Christmas Day. Um, America was right in the throes of the Civil War. A couple of years earlier, Wadsworth had lost his wife in some freak accident. And then a year after that, I, th- I think his son was critically injured as a soldier in the war. And all of those circumstances led him to pen these words on Christmas Day. And maybe you'll probably know it. He says this, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play. Wild and sweet, the words repeat, peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate Is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Have you felt that before? This uh, divide between what the Bible proclaims and what we actually experience. The I think every thinking person living in the world as it is today must wrestle with that question as I did a year ago. What does this mean? What does this proclamation of peace actually mean? Does it really mean that the birth of Christ is the end of all violence, turmoil, and war, and atrocity in our world? Is that what it means? Or do the people in Christendom really have an incredible inner life of everlasting, unshakable peace to them? Is that what it means? And I think we just have to say, if any of that is what is meant by this proclamation of peace, I think it's more than fair. That you and I would look around at the world outside and within us. And we'd have to conclude the Bible's wrong. It didn't work. It didn't work. But upon more investigation last year, this launched me into an entire study about this. Upon more investigation, I found that Luke actually has a very clear idea about what this word peace means. And he's very clear about what it does not mean mean in the gospel of luke and throughout the new testament there are huge clues to what specifically is offered here with this proclamation of powerful peace that all of us can tangibly get our hands on and lay hold of number one it cannot be geopolitical peace it it cannot be and, and you hear people debate this today, within, even within Christianity. There are some who will vigorously argue that the world is a much better, much safer place because of Christianity. And they'll point to things like uh, hospitals, universities, infrastructure, um, you know, modern education, all of those things. And indeed, there are things that we enjoy in the Western world that, do, that were pioneered and propagated by dedicated followers of Jesus. That's very true. But just as vigorous are those on the other side of the debate who indict Christianity for many of the world's worst atrocities, citing so-called holy wars or inquisitions or using the Bible to justify the horrors of the slave trade of the 1800s or using the Bible to deny rights and equality or opportunity to women and other minorities But no matter which side of the debate that you might land on, no one can argue, I think, that the world has been at peace since the birth of Jesus. I don't think anybody would argue that. At least I don't think so. In fact, if you were born in the 20th century, like me, you were born in undeniably the bloodiest century in recorded history where millions and millions and millions of people's lives were being sacrificed to some ideological machine, some idea or utopian idea of what society should or what society should not be. By the way, it might comfort you to know that Jesus himself refutes the idea that his first coming would bring geopolitical peace. In the same book, in the book of Luke. Let me read this to you. This is Luke 21. This is Jesus speaking. Here he, he says, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise up against nation. Kingdom Will be against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Sound, I mean, it sounds pretty familiar to our time. Now, please don't misunderstand him. Jesus is in no way endorsing the ideas of war or famines or natural disasters. I don't think Jesus is saying that any of these things are good things. But he does claim that these things are inevitable and even in some ways necessary before the culmination of God's redemptive plan on the earth. In other words, the world's downward spiral towards self-destruction. I was just uh, in a bus line the other day and a man in the bus, or a man in the bus line, two, two people down, just randomly said to the bus line, the whole world's gone mad. It just came right out of his heart. Right in the bus line. The whole world's just gone crazy. And everybody in the line went, Mm-hmm. We we're all waiting for our bus. And everyone was like, Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't matter where we were. Yeah, for sure. The, down, the world's downward spiral towards self-destruction did not surprise Jesus. It probably grieved Him. No doubt it grieved Him. But it certainly did not shock Him or surprise Him. Especially with what He knew was lurking in the heart of of mankind. More on that in a moment. So, first, it cannot be a geopolitical kind of peace. Jesus himself said this is not the kind of peace that I've come to bring, at least not yet. But what about uh, psychological or relational or spiritual kind of peace? People that can't be convinced of a geopolitical peace have resorted to saying that this must mean a psychological or a spiritual kind of peace. Jesus has come to give us an inner poise, a placidity, a spiritual calm, a buoyancy that gets us through all the storms of life. And most people that I know that follow Jesus do experience that. Sometimes. Sometimes. And when we start being honest with each other, we often learn that most of the time it's pretty stormy up in here. Isn't it? What about our personal relationships? Does Christmas mean the end of all broken relationships? That they will be healed. There will be no more personal conflict, and everyone's going to just get along. No more disagreements. No more. Uh, no more lives torn apart. That wars would never start. That time would heal all hearts. That every man would have a friend. That right would always win. That love will never end. This is my grown-up Christmas wish. How many people are here, and you don't have to raise your hands, but how many people are here that are estranged from your fam- from parts of your family? Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, we, My family and I cannot celebrate Christmas with important people to us in our family because of a, a rift that has not been resolved, and has he has declared it will not be resolved to his dying breath horrible i wish it wasn't true how many people are here who haven't spoken to a member of your family in a really long time or maybe you speak but you don't speak about certain things you know you you keep it with the weather or football or something you know if you if you if you get off the rails conflict is bound to happen Or maybe you look back on a time in one of your friendships, a time that when you were friends, you thought nothing could disrupt this friendship. We're solid. And now you look back on that and you go, what happened? Now we're not friends anymore. We've drifted apart or we or it's on the verge of severing completely. We feel it, don't we? Every time we go to certain Christmas gatherings and those people are there or maybe for them, you're one of those people. The Christmas season is a lot of things, but let's be real. It's rarely peaceful. Sometimes we have moments of it sometimes, but for the most part, it forces us to remember the wounds of the past that we would much rather forget. And listen, if someone actually can have peace in this regard, meaning that you're no longer disturbed by the broken relationships in your life, how could we call that a good thing? We should be disturbed by our disconnectedness to one another. That seems right to me. We dare not call indifference peace. Surely that's not what Jesus meant. And again, Jesus assures us in the very same book, that's not what he meant. I love this scripture. I don't know why we don't read this every Christmas. Here it is. This is uh, Luke 12. This is Jesus. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you. He says no, but rather division. Division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided against three, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Sounds about right. It doesn't get much more clear than that. Don't think I've come to bring peace, Jesus said. Jesus is saying that there will be turmoil in your life. And if you follow me, at least some of that will be actually because of me. He's going to set father against son. In other words, likely people you love the most. This is what hurts our hearts the most, right? Especially the people that you love the most. There's going to be conflict. People are going to get mad at you if you follow Jesus. You'll have to say some things that are not going to warm people's Hearts to you. So, if it's primarily not geopolitical peace, or psychological or relational peace, what kind of peace are we celebrating here today? It's still a bold proclamation. Peace on earth. What is it talking about? Well, it may not be geopolitical peace. I'm going to call it um, cosmopolitical peace. Let's look at our passage again. Let me see if I can... Pointed out to you. This is verse eight. It says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out on the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The word there, good news, is probably a word that you're familiar with. It's the, familiar with. It's the Greek word euangelion. It's where we get our word, um, evangel, evangelism or evangelical. It means gospel. It means good news. Now, interestingly enough, in the first century, this was not a religious word as it is today. It was actually a political word. This is something that someone would say if they worked for the government. When Rome was fighting against some other entity or, or some other government and it was a long fought battle and finally they won, they had a, they struck a victory. They would send heralds out through the empire to proclaim the gospel, the evangelion, the good news that Caesar or Rome has procured peace. That's what that meant. So here, what's, how would a first century person read this proclamation, this euangelion of these angels? The shepherds are there and the angels are saying, good news, the war is over. What? And we need to ask ourselves, what war exactly? The war is, and I would say, the, the war is over. In the previous chapter, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, gave us a great clue as to what this could possibly mean. Zechariah, at this point, he's been mute for nine months. He was uh, in the temple doing his priestly duty. He was confronted by an angel who told him that he and his elderly wife in their old age would bear a child named John. Zechariah didn't be- even though there was an angel there, he didn't believe him. And he was struck mute for nine months. But during his wife's nine months pregnancy, he was repenting, he was listening, he was learning. And then by the time John, his son, was born, Zechariah had this incredible prophecy, this beautiful words to speak over his son. And at, at the end of this prophecy, this is what he says. He says, you, my child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Because you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. It's very important because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Here's our phrase to guide our feet into the way of peace. To guide us to peace. Did you catch this? The way of peace is directly linked to the forgiveness of sin. Zechariah is saying that his son John will prepare the way of the Lord and the Lord wants to lead his people into the way of peace by forgiving their sins. That's very important. In other words, in Luke, the idea of peace is embedded in the larger biblical story. And according to the Bible, mankind is at war with God because of a spiritual disease called sin. Elsewhere, the Bible calls it hostility, or an even more ancient word is enmity, an estrangement, a hostile nature towards God. We are hostile as a human race to the rule and reign of God. And everything that flows from that, things like poverty, human slavery, or war, these are not just systems that have evolved over time, but they're symptoms of an illness embedded deep in the heart of mankind. In the West, we are naive enough to think that we can solve these problems by simple social reform. That if people simply had access to higher wages or education or nicer conditions or health care or those things, that all of these problems could be solved. That people misbehave largely because they've been oppressed. But as much as those things would surely do some good, no question about it, the reality is that these things like war and slavery and poverty and exploitation, you guys, they exist because there's a demand for them to exist. There's a demand for them in the human heart. It's that simple. It's just economics. Why does anything exist? Because enough people want it to and will pay for it. I learned last week that there are some right now as we're in this room enjoying this time. It's great. But right now there are 30 million people in this world, women and children that are being held against their will. Why? Because there's a $130 billion market for it. There's a demand for it in in the heart. There's a demand for exploitation. There's a demand for personal power. And to the Bible, this all stems with mankind being at war with God. At war with the God who is the true source of our health and our peace and our contentment. That can really heal those wounds, and in the Christmas story, God declares the beginning of the end to this kind of hostility. Uh, Paul says it says it so well in Romans chapter five, verse one. He says, "Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." The, I mean, Charles Wesley. I think out of all the Christmas hymns that we could sing, Charles Wesley's got it down. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. And here it is. God and sinners reconciled. That is at the heart of the issue. So with all that, picture the shepherds. Humans at war against God in an outpost in the night. And all of a sudden, they're ambushed by the glory of the enemy. An angel, they're outgunned, they're outnumbered. They don't know what to do. They're surprised by this sneak attack. And to their surprise, the angel says, the emissary says, no, wait, I've come with good news from the top. The general, the top brass is declaring peace and end to this. For unto you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. But it's not just a declaration. You must know that it's, it's, if you notice, it's actually tangible. It's peace on earth. It's something you can get something you can possess. It's, that means it's not just a nice sentiment or a good intention or an idea for us to experience. It's something real. It's something on earth. What is it? Verse 12, you will find a baby. This is what you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. In other words, Jesus himself is peace on earth. That's what it means. He is the peace of God because Jesus has come to end the war. He's come to end the war in his body, in his flesh as a human. How so? Well, I think there are at least two ways. One, his very life is the way of peace on our behalf. Think about this. His very life, the sheer quality of, of the kind of life that Jesus lived, reminded people that he was around of the innate goodness and wholeness and power and fullness, a human life that's not in enmity or hostility towards God, a human life could and was meant to have. He was a reminder of that. Jesus is the ultimate human. Come to live the life that we were all meant to live a life that is not in hostility towards God think of think in your mind right now of a of a life that's so vibrant and full and selfless and so powerful and flourishing that death itself can't even can't can't harm it that's what we're talking about that was the kind of life that was the kind of dynamic that Jesus his presence brought into a room the biographers of Jesus wrote that he was A person of, quote, abundant life that is full of power, health, and vitality. And when he walked into a room, he just had this dynamic that would either attract you to him. You think, I just want to be around this person. I feel just healthy and good to be around this person. I feel inspired to be better around this person. Or it would make you want to stay away, get away from him. Have you met people like that? You know, people that got the promotion that you wanted and you know that it's because they deserved it more. And you have two options at that point. I can either learn from this person or I can hate this person. Or people that have a better marriage than you because, quite frankly, they've made better choices. And it's the marriage that you know you were meant to have. You've got two options. Scientists even tell us these days that some people are even genetically more disposed to be peaceful. God bless them. Have <laughs> you ever met people like that? They're just like they just genetically are peaceful, and you're like, God bless you. Jesus was like that. He was he he had this he except magnified times infinity. The closer someone got to him, they just felt healthier. And some just couldn't get enough of him. I just want to be around him all the time. He makes me better. He makes me better. I want to be around him. And others were reminded of their shame and reminded of their guilt and reminded what they, of their bad decisions and what they had forfeited. And therefore, they just didn't even want to be around him because of that trigger of a reminder of their mistakes. And when Jesus showed up, he was just a force. He was because it was just known. that He's just a superior human. And this is what he said that that person. Here's what he said to the world. He said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. In other words, it's another way of saying I came to give you access to my kind of full life believe it or not, what you see in me you can have it too. Do you have you given up hope on that? Do you know that you can actually breathe that kind of air that you can have that kind of life that you can start moving into and growing into a full vibrant wonderful powerful life. That's what Jesus offers. Do you that's what he proclaimed. How do we get it? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 4, follow me. Or in Matthew 11, come learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. And the source of his power and vitality was his peace with the father. He and the father were one. No enmity, no hostility. He was plugged into the source of love at the foundation of the universe. So, Jesus is our peace because he lived the life that we were all meant to live, but Jesus is also our peace because he died the death that you and I deserved to die. What does Isaiah the prophet say? He was, uh, I didn't write it down, darn it. He was, he was, um, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. Or Paul says it in Ephesians 2. He says, But now in Christ, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus ended the hostility between us and God because He, think of it again, the most perfect, innocent, full, vibrant human ever to walk this planet, was punished for our hostility towards God. He was punished for your declaration of war. He lived the life that we were all meant to live, but he died the death that we all should die. And he ended the war for all those who would trust in his life and death on their behalf. Paul goes at it again in Colossians. He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, and here's our word, hostile, in your mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, indeed, you continue in trust in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In other words, a life of trust in this Jesus, in this God-man, has actually has the power to transform you. Do you want to be different? I mean, come on. Do you look in the mirror? Do you you deal with stuff and you think, man, I just wish I could get over that. Another year has gone by, another resolution. Here he says, look, first, initial trust in Jesus takes out your hostility towards God. But second, a life of trust in Jesus actually has the power to change you. In the muscle memory of your body. Man, sign me up. Paul again, 2 Corinthians says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. In other words, into a human just like Him. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's come to give us peace and access to God through His life and through His death. Because it is the presence of God that can actually change us. It's access to His presence that can actually make, can actually move the needle towards change in our lives. How do we get it? How do we get it? Most people don't. I'll just go straight at it. Most people don't get this peace because they don't, especially in the West, because they don't get that they're enemies of God. Uh, people in the Western world, we come to God for help we come to god for inspiration we come to maybe initially for some change but we don't initially come to god because we know he we're his enemy this is a problem maybe you don't think of yourself as god's enemy maybe you're not a believer but you think hey i don't believe but i don't hate i mean you know if he was around i wouldn't i wouldn't be opposed to it right but you need to understand living a life of relative peace but with god to your back is still a life of hostility some people get away from God by hating Him and rebelling against Him. Some people get away from God by following all His rules, so He'll just leave them alone. It's, it's hostility both ways. Or maybe your hostility is more cynical, a cynical mind towards God. I was reading uh, Tim Keller the other day. He had this great analogy of an estranged relationship to illustrate this. He was, uh, you know, imagine relationships that you're estranged with. He was saying the very things that you used to love about that person. Are now the very things that now you read through your resentment to justify you. Not like we pastors, we see this when we, we're in marriage counseling with folks. You know, before they were married, it's it's like, man, I just love what I love about him is he's just straightforward and blunt. You know, what you see is what you get. I never have to guess. You know, and then they're married for a bit and they're like, he's just a jerk. <laughs> he has no tact. He's you know. Or, man, what I love about her is how detail-oriented she is. (laughs) It just makes her excel in her job, and I just love that about her. Fast forward 5, 10, 15 years, she's a micromanager, she won't leave me alone, she's a harpy, I just, gosh, I need my freedom back. (laughs) Keller went on to say, we do the same thing with God. The things that we used to love, his sovereignty, his mystery, his power, those types of, now it's, well he should be, how could a God of power and sovereignty allow that to happen? Something that I can't figure out. He should have, he should have some accountability. It's still hostility. But, It's the procuring of cosmic redemptive peace that can eventually give way to all the other kinds of peace that we so desperately crave for our beautiful but broken world. For some of our relationships to have a a shot at healing, we, we mentioned before, there's several in the room that have estranged relationships. For some of our relationships to even have a shot at healing, the most important relationship between us and God must be healed first. It's not the two commandments that they're separate. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And once you got that down, then you'll love your neighbor as yourself. No, no, the two are linked. John in his epistle said, if you don't love the people around you, then you don't love God. To the degree that you can be in love, with at peace with God, to that degree you will start becoming at peace with those around you. Secondly, to learn... I I would... Admit that you're an enemy. Come to Him and surrender. Put the, 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 the white flag up. But secondly, learn the way of Jesus and follow Him. And He'll transform you from glory to glory. Several of you have come to Christ. You believe that He's God. But that's, that's great. That's wonderful. That gives you peace. But you want to be changed and you want healing around you, Right? Don't we want that? Don't we go through another year of? Gosh, in 2024, I want my, I want to know my, my, I want to know my kids again. I want that relationship to be healed. I want our marriage to be resurrected. I want to. I, I don't want there to be such anger in my heart. For that to happen, you must learn, follow him, learn from him. And he will transform you. Listen, to know him is to love him. And to love him is to be more like him. It's a natural process. And finally, this will certainly give you moments of psychological and experiential peace. And will certainly lead to maybe opportunities to contribute to societal peace. And maybe even geopolitical peace, if you have that opportunity. But it will also lead to things getting worse in some cases before they get better. Ultimately, peace on earth, whether it's geopolitical or relational or whatever it is, will only come when the Prince of Peace comes again. Andy said this, we, we, we look forward to his second coming to really culminate this, right? But in the meantime, here's what I want to say to you all. In the meantime, you are now God's tangible, possessible form of peace on earth. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It's you. How? By following him. By living in this peace with God that you have. By being those kinds of people that you walk into a room and and it's just immediately recognized, okay, whatever you've got, it's something I should have too. What do I do? I want to get closer to you. I want to follow you. I want to be around you more. How do you become like that? By being around the master, by practicing his way, by living in the way of Jesus. Your life will get to a point where really you will come into a space. You'll walk into a room and people will either love you and want. Okay, what is it about you? I feel better around you. You inspire me to be a better person. The person I know somehow I ought to be. Or they will say, get away from me. You remind me too much of my failure. Oh, I, I hope not. But it inevitably will be that way. You will be just as controversial and divisive as Jesus himself. But that is what it is to be a light of the world. Light is to be shined into darkness. Folks of Seattle, this beautiful, broken, dark town that we occupy. You are the light of this city. You are the declaration of God's Peace to this world, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. God says through you, peace, the war is over. How? Well, because of my people. What if in 2024, we, Christ in us, would be the world's tangible, Seattle's tangible peace of God? I think we can grow in that, and I think we should. Amen? amen, amen. Let's let's pray, and then Pastor Nick is going to come up and lead us in communion worship. Team, you guys can come up too. Father, thank you for Jesus and His uh, the peace that He is not just that He offers, but the peace that He is. Would you help our minds? In our souls and our bodies to glory in this, that we have peace with God, because you lived a life on our behalf that we have failed to live, and then you were punished for our war crimes. Holy Spirit, please move amongst us that we could offer this world, our beautiful city the same declaration, the same tangible peace, even through us. We just want to be around you, Lord, because we just, you are the source of true health. It's really true. At the bedrock of reality is a person who is love, who is life, who is health, who is wholeness, who is well-being itself. Lord, would you help us draw close to you and abide in you always? that we might continue to heal and be transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.